Welcome to podcast number 18 from Financial Frameworks, where the goal is to help you increase your financial decision-making skills, building on what you already know. I'm Mike. <coughs> I'm Mike Lehan, the author of Financial Frameworks. I've taught finance to operations managers for 18 years, worked for a Fortune 100 financial services firm, and I'm bringing what I learned on the job and what worked in the classroom with my students to the internet in 15 to 20 minute segments for your use. Today's podcast focuses on the difficulty of consistently saving money, particularly with today's inflation rates affecting just about everything we buy on a regular basis. And it offers some insights designed to reduce some of the difficulties and create some habits and make saving both the goal and the reality part of your financial framework. So in this podcast, we will cover these topics specifically. Number one, what exactly is saving? Can't solve a problem if you don't define it clearly. Number two, why is it so hard? Three, how to make it a habit. It must be understandable, desirable, and clear. Here are some steps. Number four, examples and questions for you to answer and apply to your own situation. And finally, some resources that are mentioned in the podcast and for your use. Okay, first, what are savings and what is the saving process? For the definition of savings, we'll use Investopedia. Quote, savings refers to the money that a person has left over after they subtract out their consumer spending from their disposable income over a given time period. Savings, therefore, represents a net surplus of funds for an individual or household after all expenses and obligations have been paid. Again, that's from Investopedia, and I'll post the link on my website, finframeworks.com. So now let's define the process in human terms. Investopedia refers to savings as a net surplus of income. While that is technically correct, how many of us feel like we're operating with a surplus each week or each month? Maybe 20% of us? Probably not really that. For example, a recent article on MarketWatch, which I will post the link to, cited a person who was interviewed who was earning $350,000 a year and, in the person's words in the article, is living paycheck to paycheck. The person then went on to list debt and expenses in asking advice for how to handle it. And objectively, a $350,000 wage is a high level of income. However, as I read the interview, it's clear that the person felt and was making decisions emotionally similar to a person with a much lower income and who's just getting by. So surprise, surprise, doing the saving is not just about the black and white of numbers. There are emotions involved. I will post the link to this article as well. So how the decision-making process is framed, which includes the emotional and intuitive part of decision-making, drives whether a person sees surpluses or not. The person in this article stated that the family had $170,000 in debt for two electric vehicles. My first question is, when those vehicles were bought, was the family prepared to sacrifice to own them, or did they assume minimal impact on their day-to-day -day finances? Choices are made with a mental stew of motivations, circumstances, opportunities, habits learned from parents, partial facts, the view of the future, and all sorts of Stygian variables that are often not in focus when important choices are made. I was reminded of a book that I read in the early 80s, 
How to Get By on $100,000 a Year by Andrew Tobias. Tobias has written a number of books, and he's really quite insightful. Just for reference, $100,000 in 1980 is the equivalent of $360,000 today. Tobias' findings in the book in 1980 was that those individuals who are struggling to live sustainably on $100,000, for the most part, were spending as if they were earning $250,000. They didn't have budgets. They had an awareness that they had a lot of disposable income, but psychologically, they had created no boundaries, were living in the moment, and couldn't see why they were overspending. So having defined what savings is and painting a picture of a decision-making process that is not a logic box and is loaded with emotional reference points, and please note that we are specifically not focusing on levels of income. Everyone knows that saving when you're earning 30000 a year is much, much, much harder than when you're earning 100000 a year. But the earnings part of the equation is not our primary point right now. We're looking at why the savings part, managing the expenses, is hard to do. So why is it hard? From my research and experience, I've determined that there are basically four reasons. And I'll list them in the order of personal control. They are, number one, deferring gratification in a consumer society is very hard work. Number two, some priorities are crystal clear, but there are many competing secondary priorities that are difficult to manage in a disciplined way. Number three, earnings, wages, or income for most of us lag behind inflation. Number four, since the advent of the two wage earner family in the United States, personal costs and the ways that families live have become dramatically more complicated and difficult to manage. We'll spend a few minutes with some statistics that reinforce what you already know and what I've outlined here, and then we'll move on to the meat of the podcast, what to do. Deferred gratification. Saving money is deferring gratification. I will put money away and I will not enjoy something today with the intent of enjoying something else much more later on. It's putting off a lot of immediate enjoyments, whether it's the candy, the drink, or the snack at Cumberland Farms, or the desire for a Ford Mustang convertible that is reinforced as one drives by your house every day. In addition to these personal experiences, we are bombarded every day by companies trying to sell us things. One estimate of the messages of things that we can enjoy is 5,000 messages every day, which seems high to me, but it has been documented by the Yanklovich market research firm consisting of TV, radio, internet, signs of stores, painted trucks, you name it, because we're pretty good at advertising, and we're pretty good at advertising for good reason. The economic rewards for corporations are built on the expectation of growth. So we need to buy more stuff to make the economic merry-go-round go round. In short, deferred gratification is vastly outweighed by all these attractive messages reinforcing spending While there are ads reinforcing savings, they aren't as many, they aren't as pretty, and they usually appeal to logic, not emotions. The second factor, competing secondary priorities. One example that I remember from my students in the classroom was all of the sets of multiple expenses, most of which were going up, and their difficulty in determining where to save and where not to save. What was 
a worthwhile expenditure and what was something that five years from now might be considered frivolous. This is called narrow framing by the economists, and we'll talk about it a little later. Number three, family income versus inflation. Thomas B. Edsel, whom I recommend as a regular read for his insight and skillful use of hard data, quotes studies performed by two economists, Emmanuel Sayez and Thomas Piketty, who found that from 1970 to 2010, average pre-tax income per taxpayer in the bottom 90% of all taxpayers fell from $31,839 to $28,840 in inflation-adjusted dollars. That means when you take the inflation out between 1970 and 2010, individual taxpayer income actually fell, while costs adjusted for inflation, you know, your medical premiums, the cost of gas, etc., increased. You're asking yourself, why didn't this cause pain to American families? Why didn't we jump up and scream about this? And the short answer is that we moved from one wage earner families to two wage earner families over this time period. And that has, up until now, masked these income losses. Now for the final, why is savings hard reason? I call it family functions fractured. This is a combination of factors, some of which have been studied extensively, some not so much, that I combine. There are too many demands on your time, particularly families, leaving little time to think, little time to analyze and consider big choices of fragmented services that are increasingly complicated. Some economists call this problem narrow framing because the whole picture is too complicated to put on the table in one diagram or one equation or one frame without help. For example, childcare, healthcare, retirement, or financial planning is much more complicated than it was in 1970. It's time consuming, it's not easy to do, and they are important tasks. I'll just give you one example that should be familiar to many of you. With the advent of the two wage earner family, the juggling of work and babysitters or daycare has become close to a full-time job. And in some parts of the US, daycare is more expensive than a home mortgage. Uh, The second example that I'll mention is, if you have had any significant medical procedures in the recent past, how long did it take you to sort out uh, the bills and the various insurance coverage that covered those bills. That's why it's hard. Now for the substance, what does it take to actually save? Again, by savings, we mean funds that are not spent and are reserved for some future opportunity or emergency. I've reviewed financial decision-making within the area of economics, behavioral finance, and highly resilient organizations, which is a favorite area of research of mine. While behavioral finance and HRO theory are relatively new areas of study, their research does provide some useful insights. I will recommend four factors for you to examine and also for you to make some notes and write down guidelines. Writing things down makes things clearer and it makes it easier to track your thinking as it improves. So here are the four factors for you to examine and build on to save. 
Number one, motivation. If a person really wants to do something many times, not always, but many times, the level of motivation makes the difference, whether it happens or not. How important something is to you will determine whether you need to act on it. And I will elaborate on this in the second factor about focusing and prioritizing. A specific objective, like a child's college fund or reliable transportation for a job, is a clear and motivating objective. The example that I will use comes from a book called Treasure Hunt, Inside the Mind of the New Consumer. And the book is basically about how people make choices using data and their emotional values. The book in chapter two describes a specific family. They're named the Montfort family and their decision to move from a financially comfortable situation. They had a manageable mortgage. It was well within their salaries. The house was reasonably large. Their expenses were manageable and the monthly budget produced a surplus that included treats and desirable benefits for the family. The family chose to move to a smaller, much more expensive house in a neighboring town because that town had a much better school system and their children were more likely to receive a much higher quality education and prosper in life. The author, Michael Silverstein, a member of the Boston Consulting Group, described a value calculus which is a term used frequently by the Boston Consulting Group, and made the statement. The Monfort family made their choices, clearly understanding that every purchase has a meaning and significance. Consumers make a very careful value calculation about each purchase. Consumers are also driven to buy goods by much deeper emotional factors that affect the value calculus, but are not completely contained within it. We could substitute the word savings for purchase, and it's the same process. So your motivation, your focus, and your priorities are very important when you're choosing whether or not or how to save. Factor number three, be consistent even when you can't. Let's say the goal was to set aside $25 this week, and a dental bill came in $100 higher than was budgeted for. So there's no $25 savings. However, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, which is a problem for most of us, and work to get that $25 or maybe $50 in savings back next week. In this situation, apply Thomas Edison's 99% perspiration versus 1% inspiration rule to making it happen. Now the mechanics of savings. If you go through the internet, there is no lack of instruction regarding the mechanics, the steps, that a person or a family takes to initiate or improve their savings. There are four-step rules, there are five-step, there are 10 steps, but they, to me, are somewhat impersonal. One has to take into account that we are all unique. The steps need to fit your way of doing things. With that said, a person needs to find, we'll call it a style of savings, that includes at least these steps. Number one, keep a record of expenses and earnings. What comes in or what goes out? For most people, it's usually a monthly basis. Maybe it's for you, it's a weekly basis or a bi-monthly. Number two, set goals for the savings and see how close you come, then make adjustments. Again, you're keeping track of things, you're writing things down. Number three, 
set savings funds aside on a regular basis. The regularity is an important factor in and of itself. One in which you are keeping the promises you are making to yourself. Number four, place the savings funds in a separate account that meets your objectives. You may want the funds to be not easily accessible, or maybe you want them to be easily depositable. You may want to exceed the inflation rate. You may want the funds to be available in a way that you can use them for an emergency. You're the only one who can decide that. But within these steps, you have many choices about your style. There are other guidelines, but those are the bases that you have to touch to hit your savings home run. One other consideration, a solid set of financial plans includes all parties that are affected by them. If there are two of you, there should be two votes. If you have children, include them in a way that makes sense to them and to you. There's a marvelous book that the author states was written to be able to explain money and investing to his young son. The book is titled, The Little Book That Beats the Market by Joel Greenblatt. In the book, Mr. Greenblatt describes conversations with and questions put to his son as they move from one of his son's friend's actual enterprises to then looking at savings and investments in a way that the son can understand the equations and connect the dots. One of the underpinnings of the book is that to take an action and to follow through on a plan, a person needs to look at a subject from multiple angles and believe and understand the task at hand in a visceral way that carries conviction and ownership. The German word for this type of understanding or knowledge is Verstehen, V-E-R-S-T-E-H-E-N, which literally translates to stand through. My point is that all decision makers or participants need to be on board in a way that is meaningful to them and to the team. Communication is very important. Now let's give you a couple of examples or problems to solve. Number one, let's assume that you are not saving any money right now. Every paycheck is completely used in paying for or buying something. If you decide to save one or 2% of your next paycheck, the net after taxes and FICA, the question is, where will the savings come from? What expense or portion of an expense will go away? And what is a reasonable choice? Or is it too much to give up? Write down the candidates and the dollar amounts from each candidate. Problem two, let's assume that you are saving money through an employer-based 401k and that you would like to save additionally. You are debating whether to, one, save to have the six months funding in reserve that Mark Cuban talks about regularly. I'll post that article as well. Or two, do you take the extra money and reduce two sets of loans that you have, say a student loan or an auto loan? List the pluses and minuses for each option, savings and reducing debt. Then add a weight factor or an importance factor to each of the pluses and each of the minuses using only your intuition and personal preferences. This is a preference exercise. Review that list and see what your priorities are. Question three or problem three. Let's assume that you are able to save $300 per month. And the question is now where to put it. This will bring us to a discussion of comparing stocks and bonds in our next Financial Frameworks podcast. But for right now, please make a list of candidate accounts for harboring those funds. Is it a savings account, 
Is it a CD? Is it an investment account? Take a sheet of paper and list the candidates on the left, the candidate accounts. And in two columns to the right, list the pluses and the minuses of each candidate. Be complete, but you don't necessarily have to be logical. For example, let's say that you're interested in putting the funds in an institution that you've read about because their rates are high. However, you plan on making physical deposits and the institution is out of your way. You may not get there. Which is bigger, the plus of the rate or the minus of where it's located? That sort of list. Those are your problems to consider. Now, the resources that I will post on the website are for the little book that beats the market by Joel Greenblatt, The Treasure Hunt, Inside the Mind of the New Consumer, a link to the Thomas B. Edsel article, The Fight Over Inequality, an article posted by Voya Financial entitled Financial Wellness Meets Behavioral Economics. They talk about narrow framing in length, and if you want to research that, you'll find the article very interesting. And then a couple of Market Watch articles, the $350,000 income person looking for advice on how to save, and then the Mark Cuban article I mentioned. And I will also post a link to a Rich Dad, Poor Dad website because they're very good at budgeting which leads to savings, and they have some forms that you can use. I will post these resources on finframeworks.com for your reference. As always, thank you for listening. I hope that this is useful to you. Our next podcast will build on this, and we'll also fold in our ongoing inflation and recession concerns to look at how professionals and non-professionals compare making choices about investing in stocks versus bonds, or where to put savings so that they meet your objectives for safety and possibly growth. We've seen the stock market take a major hit since the September 13th CPI report and the subsequent Federal Reserve statement and actions. While the market is attempting a a recovery, let's look at how both stocks and bonds are doing and what the outlooks are for both as a place for savings and investments. Again, I hope that you have found this useful. Thank you for listening. Mike Lehan, Financial Frameworks. Mm-hmm.